Our customers, first and foremost, global. And it's usually a woman who started to invest in herself and invest in clothing that she wants to last for a very, 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 very long time. And so that encompasses you know, the professional woman that encompasses the artistic woman that encompasses the woman who wants to pass these clothes down to her children. But really, we think about clothing as an asset first. I'm Talib Vizram, and this is World Changing Ideas, where we investigate how leading innovators are solving our most challenging issues. On today's episode, making luxury fashion sustainable. Back in May, we learned about the lowest carbon footprint sneaker with Cariuma co-founders David Python and Fernando Porto. Today, we'll be diving into a different type of clothing, luxury fashion. But first, let's get a refresher on what sustainable fashion means. Fashion is that which dictates what you choose to wear. It might be an Instagram, a store window, it could be your friends, but somehow you're making a decision to purchase clothing. Sustainability, on the other hand, is development that meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of our future generations to meet their own needs. That's Susan Laziar. She's the founder of Cochineal Design Studio and a professor of fashion at San Diego Mesa College. She's come up with a way to help people approach their clothing in a more sustainable manner. The first is to reevaluate what's in your closet. They say that people wear 10% of their wardrobe 90% of the time. So it's that 10% that's telling us what we really like to wear. But Laziar says it's equally important to consider that 90% not being taken out and worn. Then you can rethink your habits. Are you purchasing with purpose? Or are you purchasing clothes emotionally, just because? Apparently, a garment is only worn four times on average. Next, Laziar explained that refashion is similar to upcycling. And then there's repair and retain. This last one basically means becoming more conscious of your laundering habits. The average person cleans their jeans after 2.3 wearings. But if you could push that up to 10, you would have 80% more water saved. The next set of R's are reduce and reverse the speed of fashion. So by quality, by local. And they reward those companies who make an effort towards sustainability. Which brings me to my guest today. Vanessa Barboni Halleck is the founder and CEO of Another Tomorrow, an end-to-end sustainable design company that is committed to technology-enabled transparency and a circular economy. Well, welcome to the show, Vanessa. Such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to be talking today about Another Tomorrow. But let's start from the start. You were in finance for 15 years before pursuing sustainable fashion. But you said that social responsibility was kind of always something that stayed with you. So when did the transition happen? When did you kind of ultimately come to the realization that you wanted to take that on? You know, the truth is I just ran out of excuses. So, <laughs> you know, in the in the 15 years that I spent in finance, it was a constant tug of war. I found it 
really intellectually satisfying, especially the emerging markets piece of it. It was such an incredible way to explore the world, understand the world, build things. Uh, but I just had this unscratched itch that was with me constantly. And I actually quit three times. <laughs> and it was the third time that stuck. Um, the second one, I had left to do a degree in energy and environmental policy, ended up coming back and, and spent a bunch of years rebuilding businesses after the financial crisis, which really, I think, gave me my first kind of taste of entrepreneurship and that desire to build. And it all really came to a head, I would say, in late 16, where I had to be pretty honest with myself that the world was moving in a direction that I hadn't anticipated. And I think I had this sort of sense that as long as things were kind of, you know, going in the right direction, there was no real urgency for me to make the change and, and be a part of the change. And I finally was just faced with that reality. And so I started to put the wheels in motion to shift gears. And Originally, I actually thought that I would stay within finance, where I'd really built my career and built a lot of connections and move into building out um, the architecture for sustainable finance, which I really saw was achieving scale. And then it was truly by accident in the course of a sabbatical that I fell way down the rabbit hole of sustainability in the fashion industry. And that was what set this whole new path in motion. So, Vanessa, how would you describe your clothing line? You know, what kind of items do you have in your line and, and what's the kind of consumer that you're going after? You know, I start off by always saying that we think about clothing as an asset. And so really our market positioning is, is digitally native, sustainable luxury, but really through the lens of creating asset quality clothing. And so our customer is fundamentally somebody who appreciates that. And we think about it as basically minimal but interesting and kind of the scaffolding kind of for, for your lifestyle. And so what we find is that our customers, first and foremost, global, which is really interesting already, even though we're a fairly young company. And uh, it's usually a woman who started to invest in herself and invest in clothing that she wants to last for a very, 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 very long time. And so that encompasses you know, the professional woman that encompasses the artistic woman that encompasses the woman who wants to pass these clothes down to her children. But really, we think about clothing as an asset first. Has the kind of demand for that changed at all with remote work being so unexpectedly dominant now? You know, people aren't going to work and dressing up. I'm not, at least. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting. Our customer hasn't changed, but our customer's life has definitely changed. And what she purchases, what she's, what is relevant for her, which I think is what you're hitting on, is this idea of relevance, um, has shifted. And so maybe... Two years ago, it would have been a blazer and maybe now it's a cardigan, you know, or uh, something of that nature. So it's a lot more knitwear. It's a lot more things that are soft, but it's actually also a surprising number of trousers. <laughs> so people do actually want to get up and out of the house, but they want to do so in a way uh, that feels uh, that feels comfortable. So let's start from your kind of original collection. I, I read that your your original collection had only four materials. So what, what goes into that process and, and has that changed now? It hasn't changed much, which is pretty interesting. So the way that we decided to approach uh, sustainability and ethics was really in a holistic way. When we first started doing the market research around best practices and what was out there, what we found was that so many companies chose to solve for one thing, 
But really, when we think about, you know, our value set, it doesn't stop at just not harming the earth, right? If that's part of your value set, you probably also don't want to be in a situation where you're supporting brands that also aren't paying living wages, right? So we really thought about it holistically as environmental, animal, and human welfare. And what that does is it really narrows the range of things that you can responsibly use. And we decided to really focus on a few core materials that you just articulated and to build our supply chains in a really thorough way and have that be the baseline. But what happened was, um, even as we were doing the research early on, we had so many questions that could not be answered at the certification level. And so what that ultimately did was lead us all the way back to the farm, which in a way is not unsurprising because sustainability is fundamentally local. What makes sense in one place does not actually necessarily make sense in another place. And we did that uh, first and foremost with our wool supply chain. So we source all of our wool from two actually interestingly female-run regenerative wool farms, ethical wool farms in Tasmania. And we learned so much through that experience, both uh, through the lens of animal welfare, as well as through the lens of really what regenerative agriculture could mean in practice and how one would measure that. That was really the new cornerstone of our sourcing policy. So we really believe in building supply chains from the farm up. And so we do that in wool, we do that in organic cotton, in organic linen, in FSC certified um, viscose, so cellulosic fibers that come from responsibly managed forests. And then really the only new fibers that we've added are recycled cashmere. We don't use any virgin cashmere, really because there's a big supply demand imbalance for, for virgin cashmere and recycled wool. That's pretty much it. Uh, so the world is not your oyster when it comes to sustainability. But really interesting things happen when you have these constraints, and it really forces you to make the absolute most of a material and to focus on the highest possible quality material and the most ethically responsibly sourced material that you can. You know, Vanessa, I I guess at this time, we're also talking about a disruption in supply chain. So is it now when it becomes an advantage for you to kind of have this, this really independent supply chain? Absolutely. I mean, I would say that the beauty of true sustainability um, is really that you have complete transparency and you have relationships all the way down the supply chain, which allows you to be really nimble and really collaborative and to get information much earlier. So, you know, in the case of you know, even supply chain disruptions that are increasingly happening because of climate. You know, I'm literally texting sometimes <laughs> with one of our farmers in New Mexico, and you know, he's giving me a heads up on, you know, this is how the this is how the yield looks this year. And if you start to hear that, wow, you know, yields are down, you know, 40% as they have been in certain years because of climate disruptions you know that there's going to be a pretty material impact uh, that follows on from that. And you can really start to make some decisions, you know, very quickly, as opposed to being on the receiving end of that news six months later, because ultimately there are a lot of processing steps. So it allows you to be really collaborative. Um, I would say that we've been fairly blessed on the supply chain side. I mean, never say never. And we're definitely crossing fingers. It's It's a crazy world out there. I will say that One of the challenges that we have is our desire to have these deep relationships and these concentrated relationships 
does run counter to the idea of diversification. And that is something that I think is becoming actually increasingly important in the case of supply chain, in the case of climate. And that's one of the things that we're really thinking a lot about is how do you maintain that level of traceability and relationship with this need to really diversify? And so as we think about scale, that's one of the challenges that we're really working through in terms of particularly at the raw material level. So how do you go about finding your suppliers? You know, you're, you're kind of sat in your office on, on one side of the world, but, but your suppliers are kind of from all over the globe. You know, how do you kind of go about finding them? You know, it's uh, kind of the old-fashioned way in terms of, you know, network, 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 and phone calls, and just incredible persistence. So we found our original wool um, suppliers through an organization called Fibershed. So Fibershed is an incredible nonprofit that really helps support regional fiber supply chains. And they exist uh, at the time. They also had a, a presence in Australia. And so they were the ones that really helped us make inroads into the community in Tasmania. And once you land in Tasmania, it's a very small place and you pretty meet, much meet everyone in about three days. Yeah, <laughs> so. I bet. So we did it that way. Um, but, you know, really a, a lot, it was, it was network and it was really persistence. I think what's exciting now is that we're seeing a lot more innovation hubs uh, develop. So for anyone in this industry, in the fashion industry, I think very highly of what the CFDA is doing in terms of the material innovation hub. So they're getting to be easier ways. I definitely don't advocate reinventing the wheel. So if you can do what we did a heck of a lot faster than <laughs> more power to you. You know, you, you got to tell us now about this Tasmanian wool farm. I'm so intrigued. You know, what, what is it like to be there? I mean... Oh, it's incredible. You know, one of the one of the farms that we work with, the shepherdess, the you know, the owner of the farm is actually a former climate scientist. And she is just a remarkable woman. I will say that you know, some of the, the landscape in, in the Midlands and Tas Tasmania is a bit desolate, actually, but it's one of the areas that is in most uh, in need of uh, regenerative agriculture to bring back a lot of the species that were lost in this, um, you know, move toward uh, more industrialized agriculture. And so uh, Nan Bray, who uh, is the purveyor of white gum wool, you know, she really took her lessons from her time as a climate scientist and she applied it to her new profession, basically raising sheep uh, for wool. And she made some pretty radical decisions. Uh, one of them was that she wanted the sheep to live out their entire life cycle. So most people think when it comes to wool, oh, you know, fluffy little sheep gets a haircut. That is definitely what I thought. You know, it's like this beautiful image, right? Uh, but most people don't realize that, you know, a, a sheep's natural lifespan is between like 12 and 18 years, actually. But most sheep are only able to live out about six or seven years of that life before they're actually taken to slaughter. And most wool farms are actually meat and wool farms. And so she just said, you know what? I'm not putting my sheep on the truck anymore. I'm just not going to do it. So what that means is, you know, not putting them on the truck to go to slaughter. And she had to completely re-engineer her business to make that economically viable for her um, using both science and the ability to create a really diverse feedstock for the sheep so their wool quality actually didn't deteriorate, um, as well as to apply, you know, new business models that made that actually uh, economically viable. So Super interesting. And it just tells you that innovation happens at every single step of the supply chain, um, which is, you know, really inspiring, I think. 
Yeah, really, really interesting stats about sheep there. And I was reading some more on your website about animals. Uh, you know, you say that 606 trillion silkworms are killed annually in, in silk production. Um, you know, you talk about down from geese and ducks are, are made from killing those birds. So these are other areas that you focus on, I assume, in the animal welfare area. Yes, exactly. So we, our position is basically... We don't use anything that requires you to harm or kill the animal. And unfortunately, that does indeed involve a lot of fibers that we wouldn't otherwise have thought about. I had no idea that, you know, silk is conventionally made by boiling silkworms alive. Wow. Um, which is kind of shocking. Or that down actually necessitated um, the killing of the animal to incorporate it. So I think that my biggest takeaway through all of this is that we really act according to our level of awareness. And so much of what I learned, even thinking of myself as a pretty conscious consumer before I made this big leap, was completely unknown to me. And so we try and really meet people where they are and to just provide the, the information for the curious. You know, it's, we're not here to say, stop doing this, stop doing that. It's really not about judgment. It's just about offering an alternative yeah. that we believe is already fundamentally aligned with where a lot of people are. They just have no idea. Do you ever feel like, you know, you talked earlier about, you know, wool quality. Is there ever the case that you feel your ability to create kind of stylish clothing is ever compromised by using only sustainable sources? Uh, that's a great question. I would say that there are fewer bells and whistles at your disposal, right? Like, you know, we're not throwing sequins all over everything, obviously. Um, <laughs> right. But actually, sustainably grown fibers are often superior to conventional fibers. That's certainly what we see in the case of our organic cotton, which is of exceptional quality. It's certainly the case that we see in terms of of our uh, our wool, which is of exceptional quality. I think where some of the trade-offs come is primarily in recycled materials and in alternatives for animal skins. So there's still an incredible amount of material science and innovation that are happening in those areas. And, you know, it's continuously getting better. And we really elect to only use that which we believe is exceptional, both in terms of quality as well as, you know, longevity and hand feel. So it really just depends. But I would say generally in the, in the context of things that are grown sustainable fibers are usually superior in, in my experience. Sure. Yeah. And then you also have these uh, QR codes that, that yes. inform customers, uh, you know, how and where their garments have been made. Why did you decide to, uh, to include those? Is there kind of a growing demand by people who, who kind of want to know about provenance of their items? You know, I looked at really first and foremost what happened in the food industry. So, so much of what is happening in fashion right now and so much of our approach is really what we took from really kind of the farm to table movement of wanting to reestablish that level of connection. And I think food is one of the most intuitive ways that people do that. But people forget that clothing is fundamentally an agricultural product or it's made out of plastic. It's really kind of one of the two. It's either plastic or it's agricultural. And so why not take that same approach to reestablishing connection that we did in the food industry? And so we actually looked at some use cases there and said, well, we can do exactly the same thing. And we can take this kind of out of sight, out of, sight, out of mind kind of globalization that's happened over the last 30 years and turn it on its head and reconnect people with the source. And so... I'm a huge believer in digitalization and this idea of using technology 
as this scaffolding for continuous innovation. And so every single one of our garments has a unique digital identity. And the first use case, as you just referenced, is transparency. And then the second and third use cases are uh, using the same identity for authenticated resale and easy repurchase. But, you know, the applications are continuously evolving. You know, it's an easy way to also think about creating digital twins and NFTs and things of that nature. So it's really just a, a fabulous architecture to continue to evolve. And I'm super excited about that. We better not go down the NFT uh, <laughs> a rabbit hole. There's just too much to talk about there. But uh, moving kind of to the other side of your impact, you know, you, you, you talk about animal and environmental impact, but then you also have kind of this human impact side, uh, which, you know, you talk a lot about pledging to provide safe working conditions and, and livable wages for your production partners. Can you talk a little bit about that side of things? Yeah, definitely. You know, this is, I think, the piece of sustainability and ethics that the industry is the least comfortable talking about because it cuts straight to the bottom line. Fundamentally, you can use recycled fibers or either, you know, sustainably sourced fibers and your cost base does not go up materially. Labor costs is really where like the rubber hits the road. And so when you look at the industry and the stats are kind of a mess, but basically it's thought that at a minimum, 90% of garment workers don't earn a living wage. And so that is one of the most fundamentally problematic aspects of the industry. And so for us, it's really a cornerstone of our policy to ensure that all of our production is taking place with a living wage. And that has to be mapped back again to local conditions because a living wage in one place is different from a living wage in another place, even if they're two hours apart. So we really take a very... Um, detailed approach to that with our suppliers. We found that in Europe, there's a ton of alignment and there's already a lot of regulatory support for those conditions. In the US, it's a totally different story. There've already been some you know, really exciting moves in that direction with the passage of SB 62, which at least gets us to a minimum wage. But there's a lot of work to be done in this country and certainly in many, many, many others. And this is the area where I think that investors and this whole ESG movement is really having the most difficulty as well because it's not necessarily in the immediate term in the best interest or perceived best interests of, you know, shareholders or even in some consumer perceptions to really make a move on that. But I think it's fundamentally crucial that we, you know, approach this entire industry with dignity. Yeah, I think that's a really important point because, you know, you nowadays have a lot of, you know, even major fashion brands, you know, announcing sustainability initiatives. But, you know, behind the scenes, they have, you know, workers in developing countries, you know, working for practically nothing. Is that, it, would you say that's a major way that you stand out from, like I said, a lot of these brands that are pushing into the sustainability realm now? Yeah, I think it's, you know, we want to be a living, breathing case study for what's possible. And so um, that's one of the areas that we're definitely trying to lead is making sure that that is an active part of the conversation. And it's something that we therefore talk a lot about. I think the other area that we really focus on is on other kind of architectures for accountability. So in the absence of much needed regulation, there are other options for self-regulation. And one of the things that we focus a lot on is B Corp. So you know, we were the first uh, luxury brand to get B Corp certified, which I find bananas, but nonetheless, <laughs> it's the case. <laughs> but I think that that's such a fabulous way for companies to also create those types of alignment that don't just 
sit in one uh, category that really cut across governance, social issues, and the environment. Vanessa, where do you sell your your items? Are you selling kind of strictly on your own website or, or at other retailers? So we are predominantly direct-to-consumer. So the fact that we're digitally native is really what allows us to have the price point that we do at the quality level that we do. But we do have some strategic partnerships. So it's at anothertomorrow.co as well as Matches Fashion. Uh, so Matches is one of the partnerships that we started from the very get-go that really allows us to also reach a, a global audience at, at a greater scale than we might otherwise at our sort of life cycle. And then we have some exciting partnerships here in the States brewing in a lot of different ways. But I think that the future is really much more distributed. And so we think about all these different linear ways of distribution, including DTC. And I think fundamentally, the whole landscape is changing. So the whole goal is to get the right product to the right customer as efficiently as possible with as little waste as possible. And to do that, uh, I think we're going to have to evolve a lot. So I'm a huge fan of marketplaces, you know, using dropship technology, things of that nature. So, you know, we really think about uh, the distribution landscape in a, in a very multifaceted way. And uh, what are some next steps for for another tomorrow? Um, you know, any more wool farms in in uh, the f- furthest reaches of Australia? Or? Yes. So we're in the process of um, onboarding a really exciting new climate positive farm in New Zealand. So we're thrilled about that. We are launching our owned resale channel in the first quarter of next year, which is something that we flagged really to customers right at the get-go, but you have to sell product before you could resell product. So (laughs) that is coming very soon. Um, We have a marketplace brewing. And the big thing that um, I have definitely not cracked the nut on, but that I am super excited about is just-in-time manufacturing, because I think that really cuts to the crux of the problem in this industry, which is mega overproduction. We just make way too much stuff, partially because of bad incentives, partially because it's just a really speculative industry. So really excited to start to unpack what can be done in a much more demand responsive way. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Is that just essentially manufacturing in the very short term when you know kind of what your demand is? Yeah, essentially. And, you know, I think that, again, we just talked about the, the learnings from food into fashion, but there is also there are incredible learnings in industries like the automotive industry. So the automotive industry used to have, you know, tons of cars sitting in lots and it didn't often match what the customer actually wanted. And then they finally figured out how to retool their production lines to be able to customize the cars so that you actually got it with all of the different bells and whistles that you're actually looking for. And that, I think, is where the apparel industry really needs to go. Now, it's going to be difficult to do that for something with really meticulous construction and multiple components like a blazer. But for knitwear, which is basically made on a program machine, or things like even a more simple trouser or blouse, there are tons of ways that we can really adapt our supply chains to be much more demand responsive and dramatically cut back on the waste, both economic and actual in this industry. Awesome. Vanessa, thank you so much for coming on the show and and talking to us. Really appreciate it. No, such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. One of the things that stood out to me other than the boiling of the silkworms, which I didn't know, and, and that is horrific to hear, is, you know, this idea of 
human impact while many brands are, are doing the performative sustainability thing. Vanessa talks about her company as being a, a living, breathing case study of a sustainability mission. Also because, you know, there aren't regulations in place and, and she sort of has to self-regulate and, and it's kind of a pioneering experiment and, uh, you know, she's seen where it goes. That's it for our show today. Join us next time to learn more about the innovative leaders seeking to make a difference in our ever-changing world. Please give us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Talib Bizran. Our show is produced by Avery Miles, and our editor is Nicholas Torres.